Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part one of a three-part study of Judges, chapters 7 and 8. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. in Judges chapters 7 and 8 this morning. And if you will, will you stand with me please in reverence for God's word as we read it together. Judges chapter 7 beginning now at verse 1. Then Jeroboam, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from the Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many, Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them there, and it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel every man unto his tent, and retained those three hundred men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Purah thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say. And afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then went he down with Purah his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and Amalekites and the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number, and as the sand by the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian. And it came into a tent, and smote it that it fell, and overturned it, that the tent lay long. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped, 
and returned into the host of Israel, and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into the three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and a lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah in Zirath, and the border of Abema Mahola, unto Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, and out of Asher, and out of Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Ephraim, saying, Come down again to the Midianites, and take before them the waters unto Bethabara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together, and took the waters unto Bethabara and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they slew with the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to to understand it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it correctly and to apply it to our lives. And we look to you, Lord, for instruction. Guide us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Since it's been uh, two or three weeks anyway, a little bit of review. In Judges chapter 6, we see the introduction of Gideon. It's been the continuing cycle of they're walking with the Lord because there's somebody there that kind of reminds them of those things. That person dies. The judge dies like Joshua and the elders did. And the children of Israel forget who they are, what they're doing, and what they're supposed to be doing. And they fall into idolatry. They fall into lawlessness. And every man does that which is right in their own eyes. And they pay the piper for it. God will bring in some group of people, it varies from time to time, who will then oppress them. They will be oppressed to the point where they begin to cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. And the cycle seemingly starts all over again. And so now we're in the middle of the time of Gideon. And it's kind of interesting. Most of the other judges that we've talked about, they've had half a chapter, maybe a chapter. Some have only had a sentence. And now Gideon gets like five chapters dedicated to the events that take place around him. God picks an unlikely hero in Gideon. We first find him in the wine press of his father's town, kind of hiding out, sifting the wheat so that nobody will find him. And then when God approaches him, it's like, no, 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 I can't do that. You know, the typical response, seemingly from a lot of people that God picks. But God does speak to Gideon and convince him, and eventually Gideon gives him a, an offering that's accepted, and then gives him some very clear direction. And then towards the end of chapter 6, remember that Gideon then once again wants to test God. God has already said, I've delivered the Midianites into your hand. Mighty man of valor, you're going to do all kinds of great stuff. And Gideon wants to prove God somehow that God will actually keep his word. So it lays out the fleece. And again, as I mentioned before, this is not very commendable. It's not an act of faith. It's an act of distrust. God is gracious, though. 
He knows where Gideon is at, and he allows that simply because it's going to fulfill his purposes. In Hebrews chapter 11, it contains the Hall of Faith. It's interesting that some of the people that are listed there, and Gideon is one of those that is listed in the Hall of Faith. But if you look at the names there sometime when you have a chance, you'll notice that most of the people that are listed there aren't the obvious faithful people that you'd always think of. Moses isn't in there. Elijah is not in there. And several others that you know, you think, wow, they were like the faithful. And they are, and there's lots written about them. They are obviously faithful. What I like about the Hall of Faith is it takes some characters like Gideon. You're thinking, oh, come on, you know, he wasn't really a man of faith. But in a given situation, as God empowered him and guided him, they were faithful. And they're, in a sense, unlikely heroes. And I hope that we can all relate to that because it's pointing to us that we also are at times unlikely heroes. The Bible describes Moses as a man of faith. And he was able to see the invisible, to choose the imperishable, and to do the impossible. And eventually that's what God brings getting to as well. As we read through this account, these two chapters this morning, the issue isn't the military tactics. The issue isn't always what's obviously going on. The real issue here is faith. Faith is what we need to look at. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, It says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And so we've got Christians are either overcome because of their unbelief, just as the children of Israel were, or they are overcomers because of their faith. And so faith is the issue. Part of what we're reading about this morning is the testing of Gideon's faith, and faith that is untested is not trustworthy. Whenever we make a declaration of faith, whenever we say, God, I love you so much, I will do this or that or whatever, that will always be put to the test. And it's put to the test for two reasons. Number one, so we'll know <laughs> whether our faith is genuine or not, because sometimes we get caught up in the euphoria, the emotion, oh Lord, you know, and we make statements. But the second reason that our faith is tested is to strengthen our faith. It's through those trials, it's through those testings that our faith grows stronger, and we should embrace that. Now, in verse 1, we read, Then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched besides the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. So Gideon is referred to by his nickname, Let Baal Plead, or Let Baal Defend Himself. And if you guys remember this map, he starts out in Ophrah. Here's the hill of Moreh. They end up going down to the well of Herod, and here's Mount Gilboa where the red dot is, and just below that mountain, at the foot of that mountain, is this well. And so he's gotten away from home a little bit, but he's gathering his people there. And in verse 2, after he put out the call, it says, And the Lord said unto Gideon, that there are too many there, the people who are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, because Israel will vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. There's 135,000 Midianites, 32,000 Hebrews showed up, so okay, we'll fight. And God's saying, no, 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 the odds are stacked too well in your favor. That's four to one at the moment. And God is saying, you know what, you'll take the credit, you'll take the glory. We've got to pare this down some. And see, God's always concerned about his glory. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, the prophet writes, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. God's very protective of his glory. One of the smartest things that we can do is to constantly give God credit and glory for the things he's done to deflect it. People will come, oh man, you're so good, you're so this or that. And it's like, no, praise the Lord, God is good. God is deserving of that. God has given us breath and the ability to do these things. And so ultimately he should get the glory. 
Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.27. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And Gideon is a perfect example of this. He's hailed as the mighty man of valor, but basically he was a big chicken. He's hiding out in the wine press. He doesn't want to do anything. And God is going to use this humble, chicken-hearted man, if you will, and he's going to raise him up and do awesome things. But who will get credit? I mean, people know Gideon. <laughs> so they're going to give God the glory for that. And that's the reason. And we see it in 1 Corinthians one twenty-nine that no flesh should glory in his presence, that God would truly get all the glory. Then in verse 3, Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him depart early from the Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. Now Gideon's probably kind of going, well, you know, thirty-two thousand against one hundred thirty-five thousand. That's that's still doable. But then when twenty-two thousand of the faithful guys get up and leave in the morning, he's thinking, uh, Lord, are you sure? And God is saying, yeah, that's what has to happen. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter twenty, verse eight, if you remember our study through there, anyone that was afraid wasn't supposed to go into battle anyway. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and shall say, What man is there that is fearful and fainthearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his own heart. Basically, God knows that if you've got someone that's afraid, faint-hearted in the midst of this group that's going to go into battle, that's infectious. and That will impact the other men around them, discourage them, and it's like going up against a much greater enemy when you've got that kind of an attitude inside your own ranks. So initially they start out as 32,000, they lose 22 grand, and they're down by 70%. Now they're down to 10,000 facing 135,000, and the odds are basically 13 to 1. So these are still pretty incredible odds, but what's the issue here? The issue is faith versus fear. The fearful are disqualified. You see, God knows that the fearful man is going to have his eyes on the enemy, as opposed to the faithful man it's going to have his eyes on the Lord. If we look at the opposition, it will intimidate us. But if we look at the Lord, we'll be encouraged because the battle belongs to the Lord. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, John tells us, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. The bottom line is that faith and fear are mutually exclusive terms. We can't have, in a sense, faith in God or say that we have faith in God and be afraid. There's no such thing as a scaredy-cat Christian. We may claim Christianity, but if we're in that fear that grips us and keeps us from doing things, then our Christianity is not real, not working in us. To the point, even, where John records for us in Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8, he says, He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So far, so good. That sounds great. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To me, it's interesting that God puts the fearful, those that are fearful and unbelieving, in the exact same category as murderers and abominable people and whoremongers and all this kind of stuff, whatever your list of bad sins are, it's equal to fear. Because fear is unbelief, and God calls us truly to believe in him. Well, in verses 4 and 5, we move on. It says, And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. 
Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every man that lappeth the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, him shalt thou set by himself. And likewise, every one that bows down upon his knees to drink. And so the Lord speaks again, you still have too many. And by now, Gideon's going to be going, okay. You know, he wasn't like so for this in the beginning when he was hiding out in the wine press. And he knows God is going to deliver the Midianites into his hand. But it's like, Lord, how far are you going to go? And if you guys, like myself, ever wondered, Lord, how much more? Or how much less? How are you going to do this, God? And you just can't see it happening. But God will select who's going to go into battle. And as these men are led down to the well to drink water, the test is some are going to kneel down on their hands and knees, and they're going to basically stick their face in the water and drink. And others are going to scoop the water up in their hand and just drink it out of their hand while they can look around. The men don't know, though, that they're being tested. If they'd all known, they would have all done whatever it took to be the guys that get to go into battle because they all showed up for that reason. And so they don't know they're going to be tested. And it's interesting. I've heard about different employers that they've scheduled an interview with the employee and then the boss, hey, let's go to lunch instead. And they'll go to lunch and in that environment, the prospective employee will kind of let their hair down a little bit and relax and act like they normally act, not realizing that that is their interview and that their behavior is being watched and scrutinized the whole time. Our lives are like that. Your neighbors, your schoolmates, your fellow employees, they're all taking note of how we behave. <laughs> and do we pass the test or not? Only God will really know. But we need to be careful that in that sense we're always being tested. Here these men, they go through this exercise, if you will. And as we get to verse 6, it says, And the number of them that laughed, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. And so basically three hundred guys cup their hands and bring the water to their mouth, and they're selected to go forth to battle. The other ninety-seven hundred are sent home. It's interesting reading the different commentaries about this, you know, like what was the reasoning? And the most prevalent is that the guys that brought the water to their mouth, they're alert, they're warrior-like, and all that kind of stuff. But one commentator said, you know, the guys that brought the water to their mouth, they were just too fat to get down in the water. Or their backs were bad, or God chose the gimpy ones to send them into battle because then he'll really be glorified. That 300 studs, 300 cripples <laughs> went to battle. God could have taken a squad of Girl Scouts out there and won the battle. It's not so much about the men. Back in Deuteronomy, God made a promise to the children of Israel that one of you will make 10,000 turn to flight. In this scenario, God only needed 13 guys, according to that formula. So he's being gracious by giving Gideon another 287 or so. Anyway, we don't really know why the criteria was set up that way, but God thins it out to 300 men. Then he says two things there in verse 7. He says, by the 300 men that lapped, I will save you. So, there's two different things here. I will save you, speaking of personal survival. <laughs> He's talking to Gideon. You will survive with these 300 guys. And then we see corporate survival. And I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. Basically, the nation will be saved as well. So now it's 300 versus 135,000. The odds are now 450 to 1. 
I'd say that's good enough room for God to be glorified. Interesting that God likes this number. When Elijah faced the prophets of Baal, it was one prophet of God versus 450 prophets of Baal. And we know who won that one as well. So God is really into the extreme odds. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, Jonathan, as he's going down to the Philistine encampment, he says, there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God only needs one man that's willing to be obedient to what he says, and he'll use that man for his glory. And so God is always the winner, and for on his side, then we win too. So in verse 8, the people took their victuals in their hand and the trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, unto his tent, and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. So basically the 9,700 go home, the 300 pick up their stuff, and they're getting ready now to go to battle. We get to verse 9. And it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Phurah thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say. And afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then went he down with Phurah his servant to the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number, as the sand of the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled unto the host of Midian. And it came unto a tent and smote it that it fell, and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. You know, a couple things. In verse 9, that same night, God didn't wait a week for these guys to think about their situation and what the odds were. He goes, okay, we're here, let's go, boom, and let's get the show on the road. And so there's no time to really think about it. But then in verse 10, he tells Gideon, if you're afraid, and Gideon's already sent the people that were faint-hearted and afraid back to their homes. And so he's kind of saying, if you're still afraid, though, here's what we'll do. And he basically sends him down where he can hear the conversation of the Midianites. And then as he hears the dream, then the interpretation of it, he's greatly encouraged. The dream was, behold, lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled. Now, number one, a cake. We're talking about like a loaf of bread, something fairly small. My dream, I would have liked to have had like a gigantic boulder rolled through and smashed everybody. Then I go, okay, it would be like a steamroller. But like, it's like throwing a Twinkie into the other camp. It's like, oh, look, a Twinkie came in, and it's barley bread. Barley in general is what they fed to animals. Barley was a poor man's bread. The rich people ate wheat and cornbread, that kind of stuff. So this is very representative of Gideon, isn't it? Because it's not big, it's small, and it just kind of tumbles in. And it's the poor stuff, but it takes down the tent. It takes down the house, if you will. And so Gideon sees himself in that. And then the interpretation, this is nothing else save Gideon. What? The sword of Gideon? How did this guy come up with this interpretation except that God had put it in his heart that this is what it means? See, God planted that thought there for him. And how would the Midianites perceive Gideon from any other Jewish person around there? God put the fear of Gideon in the Midianites' hearts. In fact, if you go back to the previous chapter, when Gideon was afraid and all that stuff, and then God says, okay, take some servants and break down the altar to Baal and cut down the groves and all that stuff, which he did. 
He took 10 what? Servants, but 10 witnesses who then began to tell everybody else probably what happened. Remember the town rose up against him, wanted to kill him, but his father kind of stepped in and intervened and all that stuff. The story, the rumor of all these things taking place had to have grown in some way (laughs) that now all of a sudden it's the sword of Gideon, that great warrior of Israel. And the interpretation of the dream fed into all that stuff. And Gideon had just to be giddy. I mean, he's like, right on. He's thinking that God really has delivered the Midianites into his hand. And so we see that in verse 15. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped. He's not worshipping God after the battle has already been won. He's worshipping God before the battle has been fought, as if it had already been won. That's an awesome thing. That's how God wants us to fight our battles, from a position of victory. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part one of a three-part in-depth study of Judges, chapters 7 and 8. Please join us again next time for part two as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you